Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 310, Channing's Objections to Unitarian Christianity Considered. Originally, I had planned in this episode to give a kind of response and maybe a little bit of critique to the presentation we just heard in the previous two episodes. But I've been reading more and more of Channing and learning more about him and about his understanding of Unitarian Christianity, and I thought it would be better if we heard a little bit more from him first. So in this episode, you're going to hear what is basically a piece of Unitarian Christian apologetics, Defending the Faith. In this talk, published in the journal Christian Disciple in 1819, same year as the famous sermon we just heard, Channing runs through seven common popular-level objections that people give to Unitarian Christianity. Basically, you could say that these are kind of stereotypical misunderstandings and slanders that largely Calvinists would hurl at American Congregationalist Unitarian Christians. There's a little bit of overlap between this and the previous presentation, and as before, I've had to modernize it, basically by just changing words which don't mean the same thing now as they meant in 1819. So without further ado, William Ellery Channing's piece, Objections to Unitarian Christianity Considered. Both truth and consideration for our fellow Christians require us to deal with objections which are currently made to our distinctive views on religion. Nor are we to dismiss such objections as unworthy of attention on account of their supposed lightness, because what is light to us may weigh much with our neighbor, and truth may suffer from obstructions which a few explanations might remove. It is to be feared that those Christians who are called Unitarian have been negligent in this duty. Whilst they have answered the developed arguments of their opponents fully and fairly, they have overlooked the loose, vague, indefinite objections which float through the community and operate more on ordinary people than formal reasoning. I'll answer some of these objections now. And I hope that my plain spokenness will not be misconstrued as harshness, nor my criticisms of different theological systems be chalked up to a desire for retaliation. It cannot be expected that we shall nonchalantly defend against what seem to us repudiations of some of the most important and consoling Christian teachings. Believing that the truths which through God's good providence we are called to maintain are necessary to the vindication of God's character and to the prevalence of a more enlightened and exalted piety, we are bound to assert them earnestly and to speak freely of the opposite errors which now disfigure Christianity. What, then, are the main popular objections to Unitarian Christianity? First, It is objected to us that we deny the divinity of Jesus Christ. Now, what does this objection mean? What are we to understand by the divinity of Christ? In the sense in which many Christians, and perhaps a majority, interpret it, we do not deny it, but believe it as firmly as themselves. We believe firmly in the divinity of Christ's mission and office 
that he spoke with divine authority and was a bright image of the divine perfections. We believe that God dwelt in him, manifested himself through him, taught us by him, and gave him his spirit without measure. We believe that Jesus Christ was the most glorious display, expression, and representative of God to humankind, so that in seeing and knowing him, we see and know the invisible Father, so that when Christ came, God visited the world and dwelt with us more conspicuously than at any former period. In Christ's words, we hear God speaking. In his miracles, we see God acting. In his character and life, we see an unsullied image of God's purity and love. We believe, then, in the divinity of Christ, as this phrase is often and properly used. How, then, it may be asked, do we differ from other Christians? We differ in this important respect. Whilst we honor Christ as the Son, representative and image of the Supreme God, we do not believe Him to be the Supreme God Himself. We maintain that Christ and God are distinct beings, two beings, not one and the same being. On this point, a little repetition may be pardoned, for many good Christians, after the controversies of ages, misunderstand the precise difference between us and themselves. Trinitarianism teaches that Jesus Christ is the supreme and infinite God, and that He and His Father are not only one in mind, purpose, and will, but are strictly and literally one and the same being. Now to us, this doctrine is most unscriptural and irrational. We say that the Son cannot be the same being with His own Father, that He who was sent into the world to save it cannot be the living God who sent Him. The language of Jesus is explicit and unqualified. He says, I came not to do my own will, and I came not from myself, and I came from God. Now we affirm, and this is our main heresy, that Jesus was not and could not be the God from whom he came, but was rather another being, and it amazes us that any can resist this simple truth. The doctrine that Jesus, who was born at Bethlehem, who ate and drank and slept, who suffered and was crucified, who came from God, who prayed to God, who did God's will, and who said on leaving the world, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. The doctrine that this Jesus was the supreme God himself and the same being with his Father, this seems to us a contradiction to reason and scripture so flagrant that the simple statement of it is a sufficient refutation of it. We are often charged with degrading Christ, but if this criticism actually lands on any Christians, it falls, we fear, on those who accuse him of teaching a doctrine so contradictory to and so subversive of the supremacy of our Heavenly Father. Certainly, our humble and devout Master, Jesus, has given no ground for this accusation. He always expressed towards God the reverence of a son. He habitually distinguished himself from God. He credited God with giving him all his powers. 
he said without limitation or reserve, the Father is greater than I, and of myself I can do nothing. If to represent Christ as a being distinct from God and as inferior to him is to degrade him, then let our opponents lay the guilt where it belongs, not on us, but on our master whose language we borrow, in whose very words we express our views, whose words we dare not trifle with and force from their obvious meaning. Word limits will not allow us to say more, but we ask ordinary Christians who have taken their opinions from the Bible rather than from human theological systems to look honestly into their own minds and to answer frankly whether they have not understood and believed Christ's divinity in the sense maintained by us rather than in the sense for which the Trinitarians contend. Secondly, I proceed to another objection and one which probably weighs more with the multitudes than any other. It is this, that our doctrine respecting Christ takes away from the sinner the only ground of hope. It is said by our opponents, We and all men are sinners by our very nature and infinitely guilty before God. The sword of divine justice hangs over us, and hell opens beneath us. And where shall we find a refuge but in an infinite Savior? We need an infinite atonement, And in depriving us of this, you rob us of our hope. You tear from the scriptures the only doctrine which meets our needs. We may burn our Bibles if your interpretations are true, for our case is desperate and we are lost forever. Whew! In such overheated and wild language, altogether unwarranted by scripture, yet exceedingly well-designed to work on unrefined and terror-stricken minds, our doctrine is constantly attacked. Now to this rhetorical harangue, for such we consider it, we oppose one simple request. Show us, we say, a single passage in the Bible in which we are told that human sin is infinite and needs an infinite atonement. We find not one, not even a whisper of this doctrine comes to us from the sacred writers. Let us stop a moment and carefully evaluate this doctrine. It teaches us that human beings, although created by God as frail, erring, and imperfect beings, and even created with an irresistible propensity to sin, are nonetheless considered by their Creator as infinite offenders, meriting infinite punishment for their earliest transgressions, and that they are doomed to endless torment unless an infinite Savior should appear for their rescue. How can anyone, we ask, accuse our benevolent and righteous parent of governing his creatures in such a manner? We maintain that we are not created in a condition which makes an infinite atonement necessary, nor do we believe that any creature can fall into a condition from which God may not deliver him without this rigid requirement. Surely, if an infinite satisfaction to justice were indispensable to our salvation, if God took on him human nature for the very purpose of offering it, and if this fact should actually constitute the unique glory, the life and essence, and the saving power of the gospel, then we must find it expressed clearly and precisely in at least one passage in the Bible. 
but not one, we repeat it, can be found there. Furthermore, we maintain that this doctrine of God becoming a victim and sacrifice for his own rebellious subjects is as irrational as it is unscriptural. We have always supposed that atonement, if necessary, was to be made to, not by, the sovereign who has been offended, and we cannot receive a more unlikely method of vindicating his authority than that he himself should bear the punishment which is due to transgressors of his laws. We have another objection. If an infinite atonement be necessary, and if, consequently, no one but God can make it, it seems that God must become a sufferer, must take upon himself our pain and woe, a thought from which a pious mind shrinks with horror. To escape this difficulty, we are told that Christ suffered, quote, as man, not, quote, as God. But if only a man suffered, if only a human and finite mind suffered, if Christ as God, was perfectly happy on the cross, and bore only a short and limited pain in his human nature, where, we ask, was the infinite atonement? Where is the boasted hope which this doctrine is said to give the sinner? The objection that there is no hope for the sinner unless Christ be the infinite God amazes us. Surely, if we have a Father in heaven of infinite goodness and power, We need no other infinite person to save us. The common doctrine disparages and dishonors the only true God, our Father, as if, without the help of a second and a third divinity equal to himself, he could not restore his frail human creatures. We lack the courage of our Trinitarian brothers and sisters. With the scriptures in our hands, with the strong evidences which they contain to the divine unity, and, to Christ's dependence, we dare not give to the God and Father of Jesus an equal or rival in the glory of originating our redemption, or of accomplishing it by underived and infinite power. Are we asked, as we sometimes are, what is our hope if Christ be not the supreme God? We answer, it is the boundless and almighty goodness of His Father and our Father a goodness which cannot require an infinite atonement for the sins of a frail and limited creature. God's essential and unchangeable mercy, not Christ's infinity, is the scriptural foundation of a sinner's hope. In the scriptures, our Heavenly Father is always represented as the sole origin, source, and first cause of our salvation, and let no one presume to divide His glory with another. That Jesus came to save us, we owe entirely to the Father's gracious command. That Jesus is perfectly adequate to the work of our salvation is to be believed not because he is himself the supreme God, but because the supreme and unerring God selected, commissioned, and empowered him for this role. That his death is an important means to our salvation, we gratefully acknowledge but we ascribe its efficacy to the merciful disposition of God towards the human race. To build the hope of pardon on the independent and infinite sufficiency of Jesus Christ is to build on an unscriptural and false foundation. For Jesus teaches that of himself he can do nothing, that all power is given to him by his Father, 
and that he is a proper object of trust because he came not of himself or to do his own will, but because the Father sent him. We indeed lean on Christ, but it is because he is, as Peter says, a cornerstone chosen by God and laid by God in Zion. God's forgiving love, declared to us by Jesus Christ and exercised through him, is the foundation of hope to the repentant, on which we primarily rest, and there is no firmer foundation in the universe. When the Trinity's podcast returns, do Unitarian Christians believe in salvation by good works? proceed to a third objection. We are charged with expecting to be, quote, saved by works and not, quote, by grace. This charge may be easily dismissed, and a more baseless one is hard to imagine. We indeed attach great importance to Christian works, that is, Christian obedience, believing that living life in conformity with the precepts and example of Jesus is the great goal for which faith in him is required, and is the great condition on which everlasting life is bestowed. We are accustomed to speak highly of the virtues and moral advances of a true Christian, disgustedly rejecting the idea that they are no better than the outward Jewish righteousness, which the prophet called filthy rags, and maintaining with the apostle that they are, in the sight of God, of great price. We believe that holiness or virtue is the very image of God in the human soul, a ray of his brightness, the best gift which he communicates to his creatures, the highest benefit which Christ came to confer, the only important and lasting distinction between this human and that one. Still, we always and earnestly maintain that no human virtue, no human obedience can give a legal claim a right by merit to the life and immortality brought to light by Christ. We see and mourn over the deficiencies, broken resolutions, and mixed motives of the best among us. We always affirm that God's grace, gentleness, free kindness is needed by even the most advanced Christians, and that to this alone we owe the promise in the gospel of full remission of sin and everlasting happiness to the repentant. No one speaks of mercy more constantly than we do. To our credit, we magnify this lovely attribute of the deity. So accustomed are we to insist on the infinity of God's grace and mercy that our adversaries often charge us with forgetting his justice. And yet, absurdly, it is objected to us that, renouncing grace, we appeal to justice and build our hope on the abundance of our merit. Fourth. We now proceed to another objection often urged against our views, or rather against those who preach them, and it is this, that we preach, quote, 
morality. To answer this objection, we must ask, what is meant by morality? Are we to understand by it what it properly signifies? Our whole duty, however made known to us, whether by nature or revelation? Does it mean the whole extent of those obligations which belong to us as moral beings? Does it mean that sober, righteous, godly life which our moral governor has prescribed to us by his Son as the great preparation for heaven? If this be morality, we cheerfully plead guilty to the charge of preaching it, and of laboring centrally and constantly to strengthen it, and believing as we do that all the doctrines, precepts, threats, and promises of the gospel are revealed for no other purpose than to make us moral in this true and generous sense. And believing, as we do, that all the doctrines, precepts, threats, and promises of the gospel are revealed to no other purpose than to make us moral in this true and generous sense, we hope to continue to deserve this criticism. We fear, however, that this is not the meaning of the, quote, morality, which is said to be the focus of our preaching. Some, at least, who thus criticize us mean that we are accustomed to urge only a worldly and social morality, consisting in common honesty, common kindness, and freedom from glaring vices, neglecting to teach inward purity, devotion, heavenly-mindedness, and love to Jesus Christ. We hope that the persons who thus accuse us speak from rumor and have never heard our teaching for themselves, for the charge is false and no one who ever sat under our ministry can urge it without branding himself a slanderer. The first and great commandment, which is to love God supremely, is recognized and encouraged habitually in our preaching, and our obligations to Jesus Christ, the friend who died for us, are urged, we hope, not wholly without tenderness and impact. It's only fair, however, to observe of many that when they criticize us for moral preaching, they do not mean that we teach only outward decencies, but that we do not teach certain favorite doctrines, which are to them the very essence and richness of the gospel. When such persons hear a sermon, be the subject what it may, which is not seasoned with recognitions of the Trinity, total depravity, and similar articles of faith, they call it, quote, moral. According to this strange and unwarrantable use of the term, we rejoice to say that we are moral preachers, and that it comforts us that we have as our pattern the one about whom people said, No one ever spoke like this man, John 7.46, and who, in his longest discourse, has said not a word about a trinity, or inborn corruption, or special and electing grace, and still more, We seriously doubt whether our preaching could properly be called moral were we to teach these doctrines, especially the two last. For however enthusiastically they may be defended by honest people, they seem to us to border on immorality, that is, to dishonor God, to weaken our sense of responsibility, to break our spirit, and to loosen the restraints on our wicked desires. A fifth objection urged against us is that our theology does not produce as much zeal, seriousness, and piety as other views of religion. 
This objection is difficult to repel, except by language which will seem like bragging about ourselves. When expressed in plain language, it amounts to this. We Trinitarians and Calvinists are better and more pious than you Unitarians, and consequently our theology is more scriptural than yours. Now, assertions of this kind do not strike us as very modest and humble, and we believe that truth does not require us to defend it by setting up our piety above that of our neighbors. This, however, we would say that if our zeal and devotion are feeble, the fault is ours, not that of our doctrine. We are sure that our views of the Supreme Being are incomparably more inspiring and attractive than those which we oppose. It is the great excellence of our theology that it exalts God, vindicates his paternal attributes, and appeals powerfully to the human responses of love, gratitude, and veneration. And when we compare it with the doctrines which are spread around us, we feel that of all people we are the most inexcusable if a child's love for their Heavenly Father doesn't spring up and grow strong in our hearts. Perhaps it may not be too difficult to suggest some causes for this accusation, that our views do not favor seriousness and zeal. One reason probably is that we interpret with much strictness those precepts of Christ which forbid doing things in order to be seen, and we teach modesty and privacy in devotion. We dread a showy religion. We are disgusted with pretensions to superior holiness, that stale and vulgar way of building up a sect. We believe that true religion speaks in actions more than in words, and manifests itself mainly in one's general state of mind and life. In giving up one's desires to God's authority, in inflexible uprightness and truth, in active and modest love, in fair judgment, and in patience under trials and injuries. We think it no part of piety to publicly announce its deep feelings, but prefer a certain propriety in regard to these secrets of the soul, and hence to those persons who think religion is to be worn conspicuously and spoken of passionately, we may seem cold and dead, when perhaps, were our hearts uncovered, they might be seen to be alive to God as truly as their own. Again, it is one of our convictions, flowing necessarily from our understanding of God, that religion is cheerful, that where its natural tendency is not obstructed by false theology or a melancholy temperament, it opens the heart to every pure and innocent pleasure. We do not think that piety disfigures its face or wraps itself in funeral clothes or a coffin cover as its appropriate garb. No, too many think of religion as something gloomy and never to be named but with an altered tone and countenance. And where they miss these imagined signs of piety, they can hardly believe that a sense of God dwells in the heart. Another cause of the error in question we believe to be this. Our religious system excludes, or at least does not favor, those overwhelming terrors and strong emotional experiences which many think essential to piety. We do not believe in shaking and disordering people's minds by excessive fear as a preparation for supernatural grace and immediate conversion. This we regard as a dreadful corruption and degradation of religion. Religion, we believe, 
is a gradual and rational work, beginning sometimes in sudden impressions, but confirmed by reflection, growing by the regular use of Christian disciplines, and advancing silently to perfection. Now, because we specify no time when we were overpowered and created anew by irresistible impulse, because we relate no agonies of despair succeeded by miraculous light and joy, we are thought by some to be strangers to piety. How reasonably let the judicious determine. Once more, we are thought to lack zeal because our convictions forbid us from using many methods for spreading them, which are common with other Christians. Whilst we value highly our distinctive views and look to them for the best fruits of piety, we still consider ourselves as bound to think charitably of those who doubt or deny them, and with this conviction we cannot enforce them with that vehemence, confidence, and style of menace which constitute much of the zeal of certain denominations. And we freely confess that we would on no account exchange our love for their zeal. And we trust that the time is near when he who holds what he deems truth with tenderness and forbearance will be accounted more pious than he who crosses sea and land to make converts to his sect and shuts the gates of mercy on all who will not bow their understandings to his creed. We fear that in making these remarks we may have been unconsciously betrayed into a self-exalting spirit. Nothing could have drawn them from us but the fact that a very common method of opposing our beliefs is to disparage the piety of those who adopt them. After all, we don't mean to deny our great deficiencies. We have nothing to boast before God, although the cause of truth forbids us to submit to the condemning spirit of our fellow Christians. When the Trinity's podcast returns, is Unitarianism a halfway house to unbelief? Sixth, another objection to our views is that they lead to a rejection of divine revelation. Unitarianism has been called a halfway house to unbelief. Now, to this objection, we need not come back with general considerations. We will state a plain fact. It is this. A large proportion of the most able and illustrious defenders of the truth of Christianity have been Unitarians. And our religion has received from them, to say the least, as important service in its conflicts with unbelief as from any sort of Christians whatever. From the long catalog of advocates of Christianity among Unitarians, we can select now but a few, but these few represent a great host. The name of John Locke is familiar to every scholar. He rendered distinguished service to the philosophy of the human mind, nor is this his highest praise. His writings on government and toleration contributed more than those of any other individual to the diffusion of free and generous views through Europe and America. 
And perhaps Bishop Watson was not guilty of great exaggeration when he said, quote, This great man has done more for the establishment of pure Christianity than any author I am acquainted with. He was a laborious and successful student of the scriptures. His works on the epistles of Paul and on the reasonableness of Christianity formed an era in Christian literature, and he has the honor of having shed a new and bright light on the darkest parts of the New Testament and, in general, on Christian theology. Now Locke, let's remember, was a Unitarian. Moving on to another intellectual prodigy, there is Sir Isaac Newton, the name which every educated person pronounces with reverence, for it reminds him of abilities so exalted above those of ordinary people that they seem designed to help our conceptions of superior orders of being. This great man, who gained by intuition what others reap from laborious research, after exploring the laws of the universe, turned for light and hope to the Bible. And although his theological works cannot be compared with Locke's, yet in his illustrations of the prophecies and of scripture chronology, and in his textual critical inquiries into two doubtful passages, 1 John 5.7 and 1 Timothy 3.16, which are among the chief supports of the doctrine of the Trinity, he is considered as having rendered valuable service to the Christian cause. Newton, too, was a Unitarian. We are not accustomed to boast of men or to support our faith by name-dropping, for Christ and He only is our Master. But it is with pleasure that we find in our ranks the most gifted, wise, and exalted minds, and we cannot but smile when we sometimes hear from men and women of very limited mental refinement and with no opportunities for greater inquiry abusive and contemptuous remarks on a doctrine which the vast intelligence of Locke and Newton, after much study of the scriptures, and in opposition to a prejudiced and intolerant age, received as the truth of God. It is proper to admit here that doubts have recently been raised as to the religious opinions of Locke and Newton, and for a very obvious reason. In these times of growing light, their names have been found too useful to the Unitarian cause. But the long and general belief in the Unitarianism of these illustrious men can hardly be accounted for but by admitting the fact. And we know of no serious attempts to set aside the evidences on which this belief is founded. We move on to another writer who was one of the brightest ornaments of the Church of England and of the age in which he lived, Dr. Samuel Clarke. In ancient Greek and Latin literature, and in metaphysical speculation, Dr. Clark has a reputation which needs no help from us. His sermons are an invaluable repository of scriptural interpretation, and his work on the evidences of natural and revealed religion has ever been considered as one of the ablest vindications of our common faith. This great man was a Unitarian. He believed firmly that Jesus was a distinct being from his father and a derived and dependent being, and he desired to bring the liturgy of his church into alignment with these doctrines. To those who are acquainted with the memorable infidel controversy in the early part of the 1700s, kindled by the writings of people like Bolingbroke, Tyndall, Morgan, Collins, and Chubb, 
it will be unnecessary to speak of the zeal and power with which the Christian cause was maintained by learned Unitarians. But we must pass over these to recall a man whose memory is precious to enlightened believers. We mean Nathaniel Lardner, that most patient and successful defender of Christianity, who has written, we believe, on a larger scale than any other author on the evidences of the gospel, from whose works later authors have drawn as from a treasure house, and whose purity and mildness have disarmed the harshness and won the respect of people with very different views from his own. Lardner was a Unitarian. Next to Lardner, the most laborious defender of Christianity against the attacks of unbelievers in our own day was Joseph Priestley. And whatever we may think of some of his opinions, we believe that none of his opponents ever questioned the importance of his vindications of our common faith. We certainly do not say too much when we affirm that Unitarians have not been surpassed by any denomination in zealous, substantial service to the Christian cause. Yet we are told that Unitarianism leads to unbelief. We are criticized for defecting from that religion, round which we have gathered in the day of its danger, and from which we trust persecution and death cannot divorce us. It is indeed said that instances have occurred of persons who, having given up the Trinitarian doctrine, have not stopped there, but have resigned one part of Christianity after another, until they have become thorough unbelievers. To this we answer that such instances we have never known, but that such should occur is not improbable and is what we should expect, for it is natural that when the mind has detected one error in its creed, it should distrust every other part of it and should exchange its blind and hereditary assent for a sweeping skepticism. We have examples of this truth at the present moment, both in France and Spain, where the multitudes have proceeded from rejecting Roman Catholicism to absolute atheism. Now, who among us will argue that the Roman Catholic faith is true because multitudes who relinquished it have also cast away every religious principle and restraint? And if the argument be not sound on the side of Catholicism, how can it be pressed into the service of Trinitarianism? The fact is that false and absurd doctrines, when exposed, have a natural tendency to give birth to skepticism in those who received them without reflection. None are so likely to believe too little as those who have begun with believing too much. And hence, we charge upon Trinitarianism, whatever tendency may exist in those who forsake it, to sink gradually into unbelief. Unitarianism does not lead to unbelief. On the contrary, its excellence is that it fortifies faith. Unitarianism is Christianity stripped of those corrupt additions which shock reason and our moral feelings. It is a rational and agreeable theology against which no one's understanding or conscience or love or piety revolts. Can the same be said of that system which teaches the doctrines of three equal persons in one God, of natural and total depravity, of infinite atonement, of special and electing grace, and of the everlasting misery of the non-elect part of humankind? 
We believe that unless Christianity is purified from these corruptions, it will not be able to bear the unsparing scrutiny to which the progress of society is exposing it. We believe that it must be reformed, or intelligent people will abandon it. As the friends of Christianity and the enemies of unbelief, we are therefore eager to spread what seem to us nobler and more accurate views of this divine system. When the Trinity's podcast returns, does Unitarian Christianity fail to give a believer consolation in the face of sickness and death? Seventh, it was our purpose to consider one more objection to our views, namely that they give no consolation in sickness and death. But we have only time to express amazement at such a charge. What? A theology which insists with a special energy on the pardoning mercy of God, on his universal and parental love, and on the doctrine of a resurrection and immortality? Such a theology unable to give comfort? To the contrary, it unlocks infinite springs of consolation and joy and gives to him who obediently receives it a living, overflowing, and unspeakable hope. Its power to sustain the soul in death has been often tested, and did we believe dying men to be inspired, or that peace and hope in the last hours were God's seal to the truth of doctrines, we should be able to settle at once the controversy about Unitarianism. A striking example of the power of this theology in disarming death was recently given by a young minister in a neighboring town, the Reverend John E. Abbott of Salem, Massachusetts. Known to many of our readers, he was especially beloved by his friends because of his conspicuous Christian virtue. He was smitten by sickness in the midst of a useful and happy life and sunk slowly to the grave. His religion, and it was that which has now been defended, gave habitual peace to his mind and spread a sweet smile over his pale countenance. He retained his mental abilities to his last hour, and when death came, having left pious advice to the younger members of his family and expressions of gratitude to his parents, he breathed out his life in the language of Jesus, saying, Father, Into your hands I commend my spirit. Such was the end of one who held, with an unwavering faith, the wonderful convictions which we have here advanced. And yet our doctrine has no consolation, we are told, for sickness and death. In conclusion, we have thus endeavored to meet objections commonly urged against our views of religion, And we have done this not to build up a sect, but to promote views of Christianity, which seem to us especially suited to strengthen our faith in it, 
and to make it fruitful of good works and holy lives. Christian virtue, Christian holiness, love to God and our fellow human beings. These are all, we think, worth contending for, and these we believe to be intimately connected with the theology now maintained. If in this we err, may God reveal our error and disappoint our efforts. We ask no success but what He may approve. No converts except such as will be made better, purer, and happier by the adoption of our views. That's the end of Channing's article. How did you think he did? If you were going to give a talk like this today, are there additional common objections to Unitarian Christianity that you think should be answered? Are there any of his answers that you thought were missing the point or just not really effective replies? Let us know what you think by leaving a comment on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. And you'll also want to check out the links there relating to the eminent Unitarian Christians of days past that he mentioned. There really is a goldmine of exegetical and apologetic resources in these early modern works. This week's thinking music has been the track Slash and Burn by Admiral Bob. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.